The pre-med path can be super confusing. If you'd love some help on your path or on your applications, use the promo code PMY for pre-med years, PMY over at medicalschoolhq.net and get some help from some of our experts, former directors of admissions, admissions officers, other experts. We have a small team ready to help you today. Again, that's promo code PMY to get a discount on our services at medicalschoolhq.net. If you're applying to medical school in 2022 to start medical school in 2023, join me Wednesday or Thursday, Wednesday night at 9.30 p.m. Eastern or Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern at premedworkshop.com. Go register today. I'm going to show you how to tell your story in your application. Again, that's premedworkshop.com. If you are applying to medical school in 2022, be there or be square. The Pre-Med Year, session number 411. Hello, and welcome to The Pre-Med Years, where we believe that collaboration, not competition, is key to your success. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Gray, and in this podcast, we share with you stories, encouragement, and information that you need to know to help guide you on your path to becoming a physician. Uh, welcome to the Premadiers. Thank you so much for joining me today. Again, I'm Dr. Ryan Gray, and I am excited that you are here to listen to my conversation with Dr. Richard Brown. Dr. Richard Brown is someone you may have seen on TikTok. You may have seen him on Instagram. You may have seen him in a lot of places. Now, Dr. Brown is an expert plastic surgeon with a passion for improving the lives of others through cosmetic and reconstructive procedures. We have a great conversation around Dr. Brown's path to medicine. Now, this isn't specialty stories. We're not going to dive into his specialty of plastic and reconstructive surgery, but we're going to talk about his journey to medicine, how he came to want to be a physician, which was later in his college career. We're going to talk about how he was dismissed and told that he probably wasn't going to to get into medical school, and yet a little bit of being naive really helped him in that process. We have a great conversation. I'm excited for you to hear it right now. Ricky, welcome to the Pre-Med Years. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, I appreciate you having me. Yeah, I, I was I was going to hang up on you when you told <laughs> me you went to Georgia. Uh, but after you guys, uh, you wait, did you win or lose? You guys won this weekend, luckily. Uh, yeah, they did. Yeah, you, pu- you pulled it out at the end. Yep. Uh, but uh, I'm excited you guys will hopefully have a worse year than us. Year, <laughs> so so I, I figure I'll keep talking and, and maybe rub it in your face a little bit. So I wish you nothing but failure. <laughs> <laughs> what? Um, t- talk to me. The, my favorite question to lead off these conversations is when did you first realize you wanted to be a physician? I was a senior in college. Actually, I was at Georgia. So I spent my first two years at Syracuse, um, incidentally. And after two years at SU, I kind of got done with the lake effect snow. And I was like, all right, this Southern boy needs to head back to the warm weather. So I cruised down back to Georgia and I was going to be in a business guy. Uh, I was pre-business and my dad owned a computer company, incidentally selling computers to medical practices. They were doing that stuff back in like the eighties. Um, just more like not EMR, but just more automating practices. Yeah. So I'd always been kind of a science minded person and I had a pushback moment um, studying for an econ exam one night, looking at supply and demand curves. I was like, uh, is this going to be the rest of my life? Cause this sucks. And, uh, and I literally just started soul searching in that one moment was like, 
long story short, volunteered in the hospital, did a few things, took some science classes and did really well and decided, hey, I think I'm going to go to med school. How do you make that leap to go from, I want to be in business to let me go volunteer in the hospital? There, there has got to be some connection there because it's very easy to go, I, I, the <clears throat> business thing doesn't work. Let me go look at anthropology. Like right. why, why go volunteer in the hospital? You know, it's weird. So I grew up in Macon, Georgia, a small town in Georgia before we moved to Atlanta. And the guy across the street was an OBGYN. And so I always had kind of been around medicine in that respect. And I think with my parents doing what they did, I was always around doctors. And I think I made sort of the science medicine connection and also just a love for people. And um, I don't know, I'm trying to think about how I ended up volunteering. I think I started, what happened was really, is I said to myself, well, maybe I'll go to PA school or do something, you know, something else in healthcare. And I was like, well, let me just throw myself in and see what it's like. So I volunteered in the hospital. And at that point at Georgia, I think my GPA was like a two six and I, I was not a great student. And, and, uh, and I told that story on TikTok, actually, it's pretty funny. That was one of my first posts. And what happened when I first saw you was, was the post where you're in the OR talking about the feedback that you got. Oh yeah. You remember that? Yeah. So I totally, so I had an aha moment where I was like, well, let me take a science class and see what that's like. And, uh, and let me volunteer in the hospital just to see what that's like. And so I got an A in general chem one without really working that hard. It was just something that resonated with me. And then I think what grabbed me about the volunteering thing was I love people. And I just enjoyed that interaction. I was a patient transporter. I just took people to ultrasound, took people to the OR, wherever they needed to go. Yeah. What gave you the, the audacity to go I have a 2.6, but I'm going to go to medical school anyway. You know, this is a story in and of itself. So I, um, I didn't care. I went to see the pre-med advisor and I took another (laughs) chem class and I got an A. So I I built some confidence in myself that I was like, all right, I know I'm not, not intelligent. It was more of just, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So I never really applied myself. So I went to see the pre-med advisor at Georgia and I'll never forget. He laughed at me and he was like, uh, you're a long shot, buddy. Uh, I don't think you're going to get in. I was like, all right, appreciate the support. See you later. So that was like one, that was one motivating factor. And then the second motivating factor was my, my own father, um, rightfully so was like, look, you've always struggled in school. Like, I don't think you know what you're up against. Like, you know, I know you're a smart guy, but this is going to be really tough. He never said, don't do it. And I think those two things together made me be like, right, well now I'm definitely doing it. You, (laughs) Yeah. So I went for it. It's such a common story that I hear from, especially from non-traditional students or students like yourself who who realize very late in college that this is what you want. And, and you find yourself digging yourself out of a hole m- almost exclusively because you weren't interested in what you were studying. You had no clue. You, you had no vision of what your life would look like. And so you didn't apply yourself. And as soon as you you had that kind of aha, like, oh, this is what I want to do. And then it's just like full steam ahead. This is a piece of cake. What, why do you think that is? I, I, you know, I feel like we are too young and thrown in to this whole scenario of go to college and know what you want to do. You got to know what you want to do when you go to college. Like, are you kidding me? Yeah. I mean, it's just, of debt for some yeah, it's impossible. <laughs> exactly. So I think that's what it is. I think people go and you're not mature yet. Like how can you be mature when you're 19 years old? And going to college to try to plan out the rest of your life. So I don't know what the answer is, but I think that's part of the problem is it's just hard to know what you like. 
how did you navigate those waters? Uh, I'm, I'm assuming you didn't go back to your pre-health advisor. Like I didn't go back to my pre-health advisor after she told me, don't apply to medical school because you're a white male. Um, <laughs> little, my, my grades were good. I was just a white male. So she told That's me that, funny. that I won't get in. How, Interesting. Did, how did you navigate those waters? I didn't care. I honestly, um, I was just like, look, I know what I need to do to get there. I had mapped it all out, all the pre-med classes I needed to take. And I kind of, I went home, I actually went home, I drove home from Athens, which was like an hour and a half to Atlanta. And I sat down with my mom and I said, listen, here's what I want to do. I had laid out how long it was going to take me to get through the pre-med classes. And at Syracuse, I'd taken a bunch of psych classes. So I didn't really need that much to get my bachelor's of science in psychology. So I took a few more psych classes and all the pre-med classes and I just laid it out to my mom. I said, here's what I got to do to get it, um, to be able to apply. And, uh, I just laid it all out and I just, I don't know, man, I just never look back for me. People are like, what were you going to do if you didn't get in? I'm like, there wasn't a chance I wasn't getting in. It was my, it was what was happening. Like, as far as I was concerned, it was happening. So it sounded like you were naive, but it served you well because unlike a lot of pre-meds these days and, and, and you, um, I, I don't know how old you are, but probably very similar age to me where we didn't have all of the websites and resources that we have now. And so no. you, you didn't know any better to go, Oh crap, this is really hard. You were just like, whatever, I'm going to get in. So, yeah. I mean, first of all, how old do you think I am? Oh man, we're going to play this game. <laughs> I, I'm going to go 43. Excellent. Turning 50 next month. Nice. Good job. Yeah. So uh, your question was what again? How did I? Yeah, I just I just went for it. I mean, yeah. you're right. I was very naive. I mean, look, I wasn't naive enough to know that I knew that people weren't going to were getting in or there was a possibility that I wouldn't get accepted. But I planned to reapply and I had a plan laid out in case that didn't happen, which I'm sure you you tell people to do that. Um, you know, I didn't know what I was going to do. I was going to go get another degree or do something. Yeah. Just make it work. Whatever, whatever it took. I was going to make it happen. Yeah. How do you handle the scenario that a lot of, a lot of students say that it was a lot easier to get in back then than now? Curious. It, it depends on, on define easy. Um, obviously there's more students applying now, but there's also more medical schools. The averages of the MCAT are going up. It seems like students are getting more and more competitive with mm -hmm. the their GPA. I, I think it's just an awareness of everything, right? You you went in naive, but we have so much information at our fingertips. Mm -hmm. And so students at an earlier age are starting to realize what they need to do versus someone like myself. It, it came to be junior year, and I was the first one in my family to go to a four-year university and and graduate. <laughs> and, and, and so I had no idea what the MCAT was until my junior year or like a couple months before you're supposed to take right it. Before you take it. Yeah. And I'm like, I don't know. And, and so I think students are just more and more aware and, and they're preparing earlier and pre preparing better with, with different and better test prep products out there. And so I, I don't think it's harder. I think students are just more aware of everything going on um, and, and making themselves better applicants. But I, I think at the end of the day, where students make it harder for themselves is they're focused on how to be a better applicant instead mm -hmm. of just going and living their life and being the best person they can be and letting that show in their application. Dude, that is such a great point. So, um, you know, me from seeing but way back on my TikTok, I love to support the pre-meds and all those people. I, I get 15 or 20 DMS a week on my IG and probably half of those 
are from high school kids, freshmen and seniors who are asking me what they need to do to get into plastic surgery. And I am so unbelievably, number one, impressed that they even know and that they're asking those questions. And you want to know what my reply to every single one of them is? You need to do you right now. Stop worrying about how you're going to get in. Focus on just being in high school, being a student, enjoying your life and having a life because there's nothing that you can do right now that's going to position you that much better off than everyone else other than doing well in school and like being a well-rounded human. And I try to tell them, just go, go volunteer at the hospital, go do something. I know it's hard right now, but that that's my advice. And I, I, like, I feel like we always are pushing our kids to be so much earlier in the game. It's scary. It's not good. Talk about the, the burnout factor. I think you uh, obviously seem like you're positive on being a physician with your career and your profession and and how you're able to impact lives. I talk to so many pre-med students who hear from other physicians, like, why do you want to be a doctor? Like (laughs) you're, you're silly. Don't do this. Go do something else. Right. Why, why do you think there's so much negativity around medicine from physicians? You know, I just, touched on this with a buddy of mine yesterday and he wants to talk about this on his podcast. I, you know, you'll probably agree with me. I think one of the problems in general medicine right now is that insurance companies have made it so unbelievably impossible to make money in medicine. And, you know, the perception that all doctors are rich is we all know is not true. Yes, I'm a plastic surgeon and I do well, but I still do a lot of reconstructive work. But back to the conversation is that I think part of the burnout is I think insurance companies have made it so hard to make money and we work so hard and we put our necks on the line medically from being sued that I think there's a lot of bitter physicians out there that just can't take it anymore because you have to work too hard for the dollar and it's just really, really hard, um, the pressure. How much do you think potentially, and being 10 years older than me, the the difference between kind of where we are now with with admissions versus where we were 10 or 20 or even 30 years ago, where a lot of the physicians who are out practicing probably were just super smart. And we're like, I'm going to be a doctor because I'm smart and didn't really understand the empathy and compassion and patient care side of things. And and that potentially takes a toll on them and, and burns them out. Absolutely. I think that's 100%. You know, one of the things that I I feel like I pride myself on is my ability to communicate and talk to patients. And it doesn't matter if I was a plastic surgeon or an oncologist or a pediatrician. I just have that ability to communicate. And I think that's one of those innate natural things that I have. And I can see for the ones who don't have that, it can be incredibly frustrating to try to communicate with patients, right? If you're just not that kind of a person. And I, you're probably right. I, I really think early on, you know, you could just say, look, I'm smart. I'm just going to go to med school and that would fly. But today I feel like the patient population is so much more tuned in to the doctor needing to actually care and have a meaningful conversation with them that if they don't find that, they just go find someone else. So you kind of have to have everything now, I feel like. Yeah. Let's go back to your pre-med journey a little bit more. So naive going through this process, I figured out, I mapped it out. Uh, you apply to medical school, you get in, piece of cake, right? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> what, what happened? 
So, so I took the MCAT. I finished mid-year 95 at Georgia. I had like probably about three or four months. Uh, third quarter, I didn't have to do anything. We're on the quarter system. Mm-hmm. So I started taking Princeton Review to prepare for the MCAT. And I was going to take the summer version. At that point, there was a summer version. And then I think it took a fall version. Yep. Um, so I took the summer version. And I got like on the old scoring system, like a 25 or 26. And I was like, all right, well, that's, that's not going to fly. <laughs> um, 27. Yeah. So I, so I basically, I had applied to, and so I applied to schools, but planned on retaking it. And because I was a year behind in the process, I I had to get a job and work for a year in Atlanta while I was going to apply. So I retook it and got a 30 and I applied to schools and I was working as an orderly in the operating room in Atlanta, which is kind of where I got my love for surgery. Um, And so what happened to me is I literally was getting rejected by every single school I applied to. And, um, and I thought my story would resonate with them because I, I had a clear change in my trajectory. Um, so what I did, and this is what I encourage other people to do, and if I if we come back to this, I have a cool story to tell you, but I encourage people to call, not be the annoying person, but what I did was I literally came home from the hospital after a shift one day and I was like, okay, what can I do to maybe get some of these schools to give me an interview that haven't rejected me yet? And so I literally just started calling admission offices and the Chicago medical school, which is where I ended up getting in. There was a girl there that picked up the phone. We started chatting like you and I are now and had a conversation. I said, Hey, listen, here's my story. Didn't really know what I wanted to do. I know I didn't have great grades, but I ended up with like a three, eight science GPA and brought my overall up to like a three Oh. Um, and so I told her my story and something with that resonated with her. And she said, you know what? I know everybody on the admissions committee. So let me, let me, let me see if I can get you a phone interview. And then if they like you, they'll, they'll bring you in. So I had a phone interview with the director of admissions and I got a letter a week later to come get an interview. And a week after that, I got an acceptance letter. So I knew that if I could get in front of someone that, that I could shine because that's where I'm good. Um, And that's how it happened for me. But had I not taken that step to kind of look out for myself, I probably wouldn't have gotten in that year. Yeah. I, I am a huge fan of advocating for yourself. I always talk about no, nobody's going to advocate for you, but they're not going to care if you advocate for yourself. Right. If you, if you do it the right way, right. You're not that annoying student going, have you looked yet? And have you looked at right. feeling and calling every two seconds? Um, and, and it's, it, it, I think it's an underutilized skill that, that we don't teach enough these days to, to reach out and really advocate for yourself. I think, uh, the the kind of generation of helicopter parents. Our, our parents are the ones advocating for ourselves all the time. And yep. even even for me, I, I come from a little bit of that where my my mom set up one of my best shadowing experiences because uh, I didn't get in. I didn't have a lot of clinical experience in shadowing. And uh, I moved out here to Colorado from from Florida. And she was just at her doctor's office one day going, hey, my son wants to be a doctor and he needs some shadowing. <laughs> Can he shadow you? And the doctor's like, sure, have him, have him reach out to my office manager. And so um, that, that definitely helped me a bunch. But I, I think um, students definitely need to, to realize that they can do that, obviously doing it appropriately. Yeah, it's easy to be annoying in that process. And I, I think, you know, for those that are watching this or thinking about to advocate for themselves, I would say, find something you find unique about yourself that's different and and talk about it. And for me, it was my story. Um, It wasn't me telling them why I thought that they should accept me or interview me because I'm such a great guy. It was like, look, here's my journey. I'm just looking for a shot. Like, I just want to talk to somebody. You know, that's how I was. Yep. I I have a shirt I didn't wear. One One of my shirts is your story matters. 
totally a huge huge advocate of telling your story yeah talk about it from uh, obviously right now during the pandemic shadowing clinical experiences are are basically non-existent but from from kind of pre-pandemic and post-pandemic talk about shadowing experiences obviously you being a physician a little bit more public facing i'm sure you get asked all the time to to have students shadow you what are good ways and bad ways that students reach out to you to to really hopefully get in and, and shadow you? Um, I don't see any bad ways. Most people are reaching out to me via social media. They've either found me on Instagram or TikTok, um, and they'll send me an email or a DM. Um, I don't really have people calling my office so much. It's mostly been social media has been the request for me. And then there's um, there's a DO school in my town out here in the West Valley and uh, Midwestern University. And so I've I've had a couple of uh, people that I've crossfitted with who've gone to school out there have said, Hey, can I do a fourth year rotation with you? So I easy street kind of a thing, but no, I mean, honestly, it's, it's, um, it's social media. I mean, I, I don't, there's no bad way to reach out to me. I, if they call or email or, or just DM me on social media, I try to respond. And the problem right now, as you know, with COVID it's impossible. It's just, it's so hard to bring outside people in, which is really a shame. Yeah. Which is why we're setting up this e-shadowing thing. That yeah, it sounds students. cool. We, our first one's tonight as we're recording this. And we have almost 4,000 people registered to show up. Wow. So people want it. It's needed. Uh, so we're, we're going to have fun with that. Yeah, I'm going to have to do it. I think it'll be fun. Yeah. Yeah. So talk about the transition to medical school, right? You, you talked earlier about not being the best student early on. You realized what you wanted to do with your life. You did better 3.8 science GPA. Did that success carry over into medical school or was that a whole new league for you? Uh, it did. It did in the respect that um, it set me up for a moment where I said, okay, you're not stupid. Like you can, you can do this, nor do you have to be some unbelievable IQ to do it. It was a lot of elbow grease and hard work. So I think what spilled over for me was I always had to work 10 times harder to get the same grade as some of my buddies who just st kind of studied and got it and didn't study half as much. So I think I realized early on that that was my, that was my trip. That was going to be my journey. And so I accepted that. And while a lot of my friends were in med school studying and done early and would go play and hang out, I would just grind away in my apartment. And I think um, that served me well because I knew that for me to get there, that's what it was going to take was for me to put in a lot more effort than those guys. And that's okay. I mean, that, that I'm glad that I figured that out. Right. So, so we were, we, we didn't get grades. I mean, but I, I passed everything and, and did great. And, um, and I didn't kill tests and I didn't get killed on test. I was always kind of upper middle or middle, you know? Yeah. Um, and I was okay with that. Yeah. It's one of those, uh, one of those quotes. I, I don't know if it was Tebow that said this or someone else, a famous Florida Gator. Of course, Tebow. Is, uh, is, is, is the hard work beats talent, right? And just, oh, yeah. just grinding away and, and doing what you need to do, which is something that, that I didn't do well at. I wasn't very good at delaying gratification. Um, in, in my pre-med years during my, uh, medical school years, uh, obviously I was, I, I was talented enough, smart enough to get through it. Um, uh, but I probably would have been a lot more successful had I grinded as, as you did. 
Um, but then I probably wouldn't be here today. I'd, I'd be in an operating room. <laughs> well, do you <laughs> mean you mean grade wise or just yeah, just just grade wise? I I spent a lot of time because I'm a huge tech nerd. I I spent a lot of time programming in medical school. I I wrote software and sold it, and mm -hmm. and so just I have always been very kind of diverse in my interests. And even in medical school, I couldn't focus just on medicine. I, I needed to do other things as well. Yeah. So, yep. I get it's it. Definitely hard. Talk about the the journey to actually picking a specialty. You, you talked about kind of where you fell in love with the operating room uh, as you were in between applications and, and waiting and stuff. Um, talk about the the actual ending up as as you are now as a plastic surgeon. Yeah. So for me, um, I went through all my third year rotations kind of with an open mind, even though I kind of knew I wanted to be a surgeon. I just didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, and as I knocked off specialties, um, and we don't, we didn't really get exposed to orthopedics or subspecialties. It was general surgery. Yeah. So when I saw general surgery, when I did general surgery, I was like, okay, yeah, surgery for sure is what I want to do. I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I applied for general surgery and ended up getting in, in Chicago um, at Mount Sinai in Chicago, which is my school was in Chicago. Yep. And, um, I spent three years in knife and gun club, just trauma, 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 heavy trauma, chest tubes, central lines. I mean, you name it. Um, and so Northwestern would send over the, their general surgery residents to get their traumas because they were more of a certain academic type of a place. So some of the plastics residents that were in their combined six-year program where they, they go straight into plastic surgery were over and uh, became friends with them just being on the trauma service with them. And they're like, hey, you know, you should you should jump in the lab with us next year. We have to go in after our third year and we're going to be in Dr. Musso's lab. He's the chairman of plastic surgery at Northwestern, wound healing, scarring. It'd be really fun. I think you'd enjoy it. And I was like, you know what? I need a break because three years of trauma was just getting rough. And um, so I took a break and I jumped over in the lab with them. And as I was in the lab, I just started learning more and more about plastic surgery. And everyone sees it as the cosmetic space, but, but we know the people who do it know it's a way deeper specialty than that from the reconstructive standpoint. Yeah. And I got to see some of that in trauma. So I think at that research year, I really was like, okay, I think maybe I want to do plastic surgery. And, uh, but I was, I was just, three years deep. And I said, you know what, I'm going to finish general surgery because I've come this far. Why, why not finish? So I actually ended up matriculating and transferring over to Northwestern because they had a couple of residents that stayed in the lab another year and they had some openings in their fourth year general surgery class. And I figured, Hey, if I'm going to stay in general surgery, it'd be nice to have that pedigree and do some surgeonic, not just trauma. And then, Hey, if I get into plastics, cool. So I applied. And, and I think one of the things that helped me was um, Dr. Musto was a very loyal guy, the chairman of plastic surgery. And if you wrote papers, he would go to bat for you. And I wrote three or four papers while I was in his lab and I got it done and I kept my end of the bargain up and he wrote me some good recommendations that really helped me out when I applied and, and I got into plastic surgery and, and that's how it happened. I think a lot of students watching this will probably know plastics from like Dr. Miami on social yeah. media and it's just, it's BBA all day long. Yep. Um, you talked about reconstructive surgery for a student mm -hmm. who doesn't really understand what that entails. Talk about that for a minute. Yeah, there's a very vast, vastly deep side of plastic surgery that most people don't see from pediatric surgery, craniofacial, um, craniosynostosis, those types of things, cleft lips, cleft palates, um, to the adult reconstructive world, which could extend from breast cancer reconstruction after mastectomies 
to patients and trauma patients with large defects. Um, so free flap, microvascular reconstruction, most people don't understand that or know about that, where we take tissue from one part of the body with an artery and a vein, and we move it up to your jaw because half of it got removed for cancer. And under the microscope, we hook up and we sew artery and veins together to reconstruct the jaw, the face, the leg, bad fractures, things like that. I think that's the side that most people don't see. And I think another neat side of it, which I got to be heavily involved with out here being in Arizona was Mohs reconstruction. So, you know, where um, dermatologists would make a big hole in the face, taking off the skin cancer, and they'd send them over to me and go, get it closed. <laughs> and I would have to do little flaps and all kinds of things. And so that side of plastic surgery, you know, when we get shade from people on social media about, oh, says the plastic surgeon and all that, I just don't think people can appreciate the depth of the reconstructive world that exists out there and the people who really don't do cosmetic surgery that have dedicated their life to reconstructive work. And it's, it's life-changing stuff. Yeah. They don't, they don't have the full context. They, they just mm -hmm. see the, the superficial side of it. And, and there is some of that obviously. Uh, oh yeah. But, but there's, it's so much more. Yep. What's your recommendation for, for students out there who, or potentially like yourself who who struggled early on, didn't really know where they wanted to go, didn't find their way, and, and then now have, and, and probably are facing very similar feedback now that you faced back then, getting laughed at by their advisor, uh, being told, good luck. Yeah, you know, I think there's a couple of important things for people to realize is that, um, number one, I think that I try to counsel young kids to look in the mirror and start talking positively to themselves. That's the first thing. You can't you can't look yourself in the mirror and say, I can't, I won't, I'll never. And we all do that, by the way. We've all been through there. I'm trying to help you with my experience of doing that. You've got to learn how to turn those voices off, number one, and tell yourself, I, I can do this. That's the first thing. The I'm, second I'm a thing- of yet, the word yet. Yes, I, I like I'm that. A I, I'm a bad, or I, I'm not a good student. Yet. Yes, right? exactly. I agree 100%. I think the second thing that's really important is for people to realize that everybody fails. There's no one on planet Earth that has not failed. Do you think Bill Gates succeeded in every single step of the way or Jeff Bezos? Yeah. All of those guys, men and women, fail. And I think a lot of, a lot of the kids to talk to today or I get in my messages and my DMs, I'm scared to fail. And I'm like, why? You need to fail. I think failing is important. I think what happens after you fail is what's going to define you as a person. Are you going to let it get you down? Or are you going to get back up and say, okay, what did I do wrong and how can I figure out how to get it better? So I would say, start talking positively to yourself and be okay with failure. And then clearly they have to have a backup plan. You know, like how many times are you willing to apply to get to where you want to be? You know, some people apply three, four, five times and they stick it out and some people give up after two or one. Yeah. Um, I, I love all of the rejection stories. I think most people know like the, the Michael Jordan was was rejected from his high school basketball yeah. team. The Oprah story. I was reading a, a book with my six-year-old daughter last night about influential people in our, our history and reading about Abraham Lincoln. He failed to to make it to the Senate and he, he failed the, the running for president four times before he actually became president. And I was just like, it's just failures all around. And it, it, that, that doesn't define you unless you let it, it's what you do after. And it's, it's so cliche to say, well, it's not how many times you get knocked down, how many times you get, get back up, but it's just, it's so true. 
Yeah, it is. They're all life lessons, man. I mean, God, we all have them. I think that's part of the problem with social media today, right? We see all the superficial, perfect life stuff and you don't see everything that's that. Have you ever seen that meme that's like the iceberg that's sticking above the water and above it, you see money and success and all that stuff. And then below the water is like hard work, failure, all that stuff. You know, social media is the same way. You see the superficial success, but you don't really realize that a lot of the people that are on there actually have worked really hard and failed a lot to get to where they are. How can a student understand when they should give up? Oh man, that is a great question. Um, I think what happens is in your failure, I think some of them probably decide and and reflect a little bit that maybe this really isn't my calling. Um, And I think if you feel that inside, it's time to quit. Or if you feel, if you feel that it's just not right, I think people know inside of themselves when something's just not right for them. And I've heard a lot of stories about people that didn't get into med school that were like, thank God I didn't get in because they ended up doing this. And that was really what I wanted to do. So I think that stuff happens for a reason. And I do believe there is a point where you have got to get on with your life. You know, like if you're not getting in three, four, five, even six times, there's a point where it's like, look, it's not your journey, you know? Um, and maybe you could do something else around medicine and healthcare that's not being a doctor and still have meaningful impact. You know, there's so much that you can do. So that would be my advice. Yeah. That's a tough question. It's, it is a hard one. Cause what do you tell them? Oh man. Um, I, I don't know if I tell them anything other than if I'm on a, a call with them, I really try to just dig down deep into their motivations and trying to understand. And, and if their motivations are true and, and are there, are there, then it's like, okay, well, let's, let's figure this out, right? What a good advisor should do. Let's figure out how we get you there, whether it's going mm-hmm. to an international school and, and then fighting to come back to the States. Um, but I, I was on a call once with a student who, who was in tears. So if, and we got to a point where I'm like, if you could do anything right now, what would it be? She goes, I would, I'd be a vet. I'm like, and then, then why are you on this journey to medical school? Right. And a lot of times, right. It's the parents behind this right. pushing them to, to medicine. And so I, I think just so much reflection and self-awareness and, and really being honest with yourself about what you want is, is key. Yep. I agree. Love that. Where can people find you on social media? Uh, okay. A couple places. So on um, Instagram, it's at Dr. Richard J. Brown, Dr. Richard J. Brown. I just got verified on Friday. I was nice. like, where did Congrats. that come from? <laughs> it was crazy. So weird. I tried for like in the app, like four or five times and they said, no. So see people rejection yeah. over and over and I gave up <laughs> and I got it. So, and then on TikTok, which is almost at a million now, um, it's, 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 I know it's the real TikTok doc. I don't do so much on Facebook, but I'm on there. We're going to be doing more. And then I'm not active on Twitter, but it's the same DR Richard J. Brown. Yeah. TikTok. I I wanted to get into TikTok and then the pandemic hit and I just, I have no extra time for that. And I just, I want it. I miss it. I love TikTok. It's really fun. I'll scroll all night long and stay up until two o'clock in the morning, but (laughs) doom scrolling as they call it. I know, totally. Well, what grabbed, what made my account take off was I got verified around 350K or something. And, and that got me in touch with someone at TikTok to be in the creator program. And I asked him one day, I was like, listen, I've seen a couple of people show some survey stuff. And I thought that was like, not okay to do. And he was like, 
give it a shot if it gets taken down. he's like you can't show nudity that's like part of the protocol but like if you want to show kids how to suture up an incision go for it if it gets taken down let's see what happens so i started doing like the behind the scenes gray's anatomy and the or stuff with my gopro and that that's really been successful it's been fun yeah are you really wearing the gopro on your head or on your chest where are you wearing it it's on my head during surgery yeah yeah it's awesome. I love it, man. It's been really fun. Just showing kids how, how do you change your gloves in the OR? How do we gown up? How do we stuff like that? You know, and every now and then I'll zoom in close on a suture. That's not gory on an incision and show them how to sew and things like that. So my it's been my fun. favorite one was, was teaching, teaching students to, to clean up after yourself, after you, <laughs> you scrub in. <laughs> Did you see that scrub sink one? <laughs> yeah. Pick up your freaking scrub brushes. People. Come on. <laughs> Uh, hopefully you didn't stage that. And those are filthy surgeons. No, they were. I literally walked out of the OR and this is, this is how TikTok goes, right? Like you walk out, you don't plan anything. I saw it, I recorded it and I posted it and it did really well. It's the ones that you plan out that just never do well. Yeah. That's awesome. So obviously Dr. Pimple Popper set the, set the tone for showing the world these (laughs) these fun procedures. And now she has her own TV show. What's, what's the future hold for you? Oh, you know what? It actually, it's a, it's a great question because I have some really cool stuff planned. So probably different than any other plastic surgeon I'll ever meet in that I am very much into health and wellness and I'm into holistic health and wellness. And I am starting up a wellness and health program in my um, office that hopefully will be big in this town and then eventually you know, nationwide where we have a macronutrient coach. I have a mental body image specialist, psychologist, a food prep program, and a trainer who's helping my patients get ready to be healthy before surgery. And if they don't need surgery when they're done with them, then they can just move on. So I'm really big into starting this kind of holistic health and wellness thing that actually I feel like will be my exit strategy from plastic surgery one day. I, I was, you know, I was saying to, to a surgeon the other day, I don't want to be the guy sitting next to a surgeon that says, I don't know what else I would do if I didn't operate. I'm like, there's nothing else that you would do. <laughs> there's not, not huh? one thing you wouldn't do. So for me, it's going to be kind of parlaying into the health and wellness side of it. Cause I really enjoy helping people be motivated to be more healthy. How much of that do you think is, is founded on your fitness journey versus potentially uh, more from the, the cosmetic side of plastic surgery, seeing patients come in, wanting to change something about themselves, potentially not getting that satisfaction after they get the nose that they want or the ears that they want or whatever it is, and realizing that there's so much more to health and, and wanting to figure out other opportunities to serve them. Yeah, it's been both. So number one, I exited out of uh, plastic surgery training. I was close to 200 pounds and um, I'd always been a high school athlete and pretty in shape. So when I got out, I lost about 20 or 30 pounds and then I found CrossFit and started packing on muscle. And so that was my journey. So that was part of it. The second part of it was realizing that a patient comes in who wants a tummy tuck and they still have all this visceral fat, which for those of you who don't know what that is, is the fat that surrounds your organs. It's underneath your six pack muscles inside the abdomen and they're bulging and they want a flat stomach. And I look them in the face and I go, listen, I can do a tummy tuck until you're blue in the face and I can tighten up your muscles with sutures, but you ain't going to be flat because you got visceral fat. And so you need to lose it. There's you no know, abdominal liposuction. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> I'm like, they're like, well, can you target that to lose it? I'm like, yeah, it's called meal plan. 
and move your body. So that's really where this whole concept was born from was that I want patients to be able to number one, get the lifestyle that they need in place before surgery. So number one, they can have a good result, but number two, so they can maintain that result for the rest of their life and not just yo-yo. So that's kind of where that came from. How much disservice do you think we, we do our, our medical education system does to future patients because we don't teach a lot of nutrition and, and exercise in medical school? It's huge, man. I mean, I think that, um, as a society, everyone's buying into these silly diets and silly plans that are money scheming journeys. There's just, there's no, I don't know what to say It's the worst thing ever. Like we all know that diets don't work. And I think we are doing a huge disservice because if we could educate people to realize that not only can you still eat cookies every now and then and not food shame or food restrict yourself, you can also have the body that you want to live in, which may not be a bean pole Barbie, right? Like I'm not saying that that's healthy. Their healthy looks different for everybody, but I think we're doing a huge disservice by not showing people that if you just learn how to nutritionally supply your body every day with good and some bad or some things we would call bad um, and have that balance. And that's where the problem is people yo-yo because they're always wanting the quick fix and they don't realize that it's, it's a journey to keep it. Yeah. You know, a journey to get it and to keep it. Yeah. As we wrap up here, what are some final words of wisdom do you have for the student out there struggling on their journey, wanting to be a a future Dr. Ricky? Yeah. You know, I tell them all, um, you got to look in the mirror and you have to ask yourself this question. Do I 100% without any doubt want to be a doctor and take care of patients? Because I tell people, if there's anything else that you could see yourself doing, do that. And the reason is because the journey is so hard that if you are not 100% into it up here, when you do come across those tough times in medicines that in medicine, that's very difficult, you will stumble, you will fall and you will fail. And it will be hard to get back up when it's not in your heart. And it's not what you really want to do. It's easy to just go, "Eh, I'm done. I quit. So I think if I could tell anybody one thing, it's look in the mirror and do a lot of soul searching before you really decide to do this, because it has to be in your gut what you want to do for the rest of your life. All right, there you have it. If you want to go check out Dr. Brown, if you go to Dr. Richard J. Brown on Instagram, you can find him there or on TikTok and other places. Just go find, just search for Dr. Richard Brown. You'll find him everywhere. He is an awesome dude with a great story and hopefully has helped motivate you a little bit more today. Hope you have a great week. We'll see you next time here on The Pre-Med Years. This is MedEd Media.